today from Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The word of the Lord. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There go the ships. And there is that Leviathan whom you made to take its pleasure therein. When you give it to them, they gather it. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you let your breath go forth, they shall be made and you shall renew the face of the earth. The glorious majesty of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. If he even touches the hills, they shall smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God while I have my being. And so shall my words please him, and my joy shall be in the Lord. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord If you would, you can grab a seat. Father, would you guide us uh, in your truth this morning and open up our hearts to your word. In Christ's name and by his spirit, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are celebrating Pentecost Sunday or Holy Spirit Sunday, or if you're old school, Holy Ghost Sunday. That doesn't bother you or freak you out. It did for me when I was a little kid. Um, But this is the day, naturally, in the Christian year when you have readings talking about the Holy Spirit. And so, as you might guess, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. But it's one of those things where, like, okay, what are you going to say about the Holy Spirit? Because it's a little bit like saying, today we're going to talk about Jesus. Okay, obviously, but what, what on earth do you say? And so, if I can impress upon you one thing you would leave understanding is that the Holy Spirit is the gift of God to the church and to you. It is the um, ultimate gift, the big gift, the, the, the one gift in the New Testament that is highlighted over and over again. It's like a fulfillment. It is, quite literally, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people, the promise that he said, I will be with them forever. And that's how he does it. Of all the things that our Lord Jesus Christ decided to send to his people, and that includes each and every one of you, I'm sure, that you might grow in discipleship and persevere to the end, he sends and gifts the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be a disciple and to understand discipleship. And what is discipleship? Well, it's it's like that line that we know Jesus said to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Or elsewhere, he said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And so what he does by sending the Holy Spirit is empower you to be able to know him and love him and enjoy him forever, to persevere, to be a disciple now and to the end. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So from the God of all wisdom, from our perfect Father in heaven, we have received the perfect gift that would enable us to be disciples. Solomon asked for wisdom, and God praised him. Might we, we, you and I, ask God for more of the Holy Spirit? What would God say to us? So ultimately what that means is, and John makes it clear, or Jesus makes it clear through the Gospel of John, is that this gift will remain with you forever. That's the whole point. This is with you forever. And so that means, long and short, you are never alone. And maybe that's a comfort, and at times maybe it's not so much a comfort. I know if you're like me or like my wife, sometimes you need a minute alone. All you want is 20 minutes to read your book or take a break, and the kids or the grandkids or the phones ringing off the hook or whatever. But that's not what we're talking about, are we? What we're talking about is the loneliness, the isolation, the weakness that comes from being truly by yourself. No help, no presence, no love. For the Christian, that's not true, and it never will be. 
So if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at John chapter 14 because we're going to go through a little bit and we are going to talk about what is the Holy Spirit and to some degree. We're going to define that or see what Jesus is saying through this chapter of John. We're also going to look at where does he go, like to whom is he sent this Holy Spirit? And then finally, what does he do? Like what is he doing now? What can we look forward to? Those kinds of things and try to, try to look at this, uh, this scripture for help. Well, Jesus begins here in response to Philip. Now, recall, this is that, in this passage, one of the most famous verses here, actually, is John 14, 6. We know Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And this is all in response to Philip just asking, well, like Solomon's question, a really good question, a really big request. If you could just show us the Father. That's what he wants to know. And Jesus is not confused because he knows everything. But he's feigning confusion. He's showing Philip, how can you not see this? You know what I began thinking about this morning? I know I prepped the sermon days in advance, of course, and I was completely prepared way, way in advance of this. But anyway, I was thinking about this again this morning. And it occurred to me that, like, um, when Jesus is asking Philip this question, is the Holy Spirit in part an answer to that question? In other words, when Philip says, just show me the Father, and Jesus says, how can you not know me, Philip? It's a little bit like saying but with the Holy Spirit, you will, right? Anyway, we're going we're gonna to get into that. But look at, if you would, he responds to it. And then when we get to the part about the, the Holy Spirit, you can see this in verse 16. Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another help, helper to be with you forever. So if we ask the question, who is the Spirit, Jesus answers in part by what he does. He says he is the helper. The helper. Now, what does that make you think of? I mean, I imagine it would make you think of when you've been helped or you've been a helper. When your grandkids or your kids say, hey, can I help? Or maybe when you were trying to lift something and somebody strong came along and said, hey, let me help you. But it also ought to make us think of from the very beginning when Jesus looked, well, Jesus did look, but God looked at Adam and said, this isn't good for you to be alone. You need a what? Do you remember that? You need a helper or a helpmate. And so from the very beginning, this, this um, community, this relationship, this idea of relationship was, is of the utmost importance that we not be alone, not, not in marriage, uh, not in life. Jesus was never alone and is never alone. The Holy Trinity has enjoyed community, lover, beloved, and love for all eternity. And so he's never alone. So central to what it means to be, to exist, and certainly for humanity, is to not be alone. Think for a moment those times in your life when you have truly felt alone. What was going on? What circumstance in your life caused you to feel that way? What lies can you look back on and say that you were told? Maybe by someone physical or maybe by your own mind or maybe you can look back on those times and say, I think that was a work of the enemy. Whispering in my ear, you are utterly alone. That's one of the goals of the enemy is to isolate. We talked about that last week. And so this is not good to be alone. And the enemy lies to us, lies to Christians, try to, try to isolate us and say you are alone, but you are not. You actually have a helper. 
So when things happen in our lives, what that means is when things happen in our lives that are too, too heavy to lift or too difficult to manage or too confusing to see, what does Jesus say? He says in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to help you. Now, how did that look, Jesus asking the Father? Do we see him in the throne room? Dad, I need a favor. I need you to send the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe something like that. And of course, Jesus has a perfect relationship with the Father, so he knows what he asks will be answered because Jesus asks for the perfect gift. And of course, God is the perfect Father, isn't he? And so he sends the Holy Spirit. This is the one thing the church needed, more than Jesus staying with them. It also occurs to me that when you think about um, last week, last week we celebrated uh, Ascension, which is that Sunday when we think about um, uh, uh, Jesus going to, to be on the throne forever, to begin that process of being uh, at the right hand of God. These two Sundays are actually linked. There's a reason they happen back to back, not only historically, but we, we squeeze them back to back. The, the, the act of Jesus ascending into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, in other words, ask the question, where is Jesus now? The reason we know he's at the right hand of God is because the Holy Spirit descended to the earth. So Christ's ascension to the right hand of God, the throne, is proved by the Holy Spirit's descent to the earth. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, I will, here it is in John 14, I will send the helper to you. Jesus called it, just like he called his death and resurrection. And so with the Holy Spirit coming to be here and awaken us and empower us and help us is proof that who's on the throne? Christ is on the throne. That's an important just sidebar for the moment because we can be um, discouraged and saddened or confused or, or wondering what is going on when we see the state of our world or culture. Or maybe you don't even have to think big. Maybe you could just say the state of my family at the moment, right? The state of my marriage, the state of my relationship with my coworkers or my boss. Where is Jesus? The presence of the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Holy Spirit into your life is proof that he is on the throne, that he is sovereign, he is king, he's in charge. And so now the questions shift, don't they? They shift to more like, okay, so what are you doing? <laughs> um, maybe Jesus wants me to wait or he's trying to teach me something. We can have confidence in those kinds of answers instead of wondering, is Jesus in control? We know for sure that he is. So um, the Holy Spirit is the helper, but Jesus goes on and says he's even the spirit of truth. Now this is very important in our understanding of what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, you see, Philip thought he knew the right question. He did, at least to some degree, the right desire, but he failed to recognize the Father in Christ. There was, a, there was a gap in his understanding, and the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of truth, helps us to understand things. Think about this. In uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying there? That the Holy Spirit allows us to know Jesus. That's how not only you and I know Jesus, it's how Philip would know Jesus. 
Now that's profound. What, what, what we're saying here, what scripture is seeming to tell us that even though Philip hung about Jesus for two and a half years seemingly, maybe even longer, um, went on retreats with him, they, they ate together, they probably brushed their teeth next to each other, who knows? They joked with each other. Jesus still tells them and responds and asks them the question, Philip, how can you not know me after all this time? It is the Holy Spirit that would shape that. And so Herman Bovink said, just, just as no one comes to the Father but through the Son, so no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. In some ways, he's quoting 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It is in the Holy Spirit that God himself, through Jesus Christ, dwells in our hearts. Now, as evangelicals, we love to say that. You know, you got to ask Jesus is in your heart. Jesus is in your heart. How? I mean, this five foot ten or six foot, I don't know how tall Jesus is, human person is not inside of me, of course, but how? Well, by way of the Holy Spirit. And we, can, we know this is true because we're Trinitarians. We believe in Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as one God. And so Jesus is inside of us because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to see the Father through Christ. So that's who he is and a little bit of, of what he does. But now where does he go? Well, look at verse 17 for a moment because we see this very curious or important part. He says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because, wait, I missed it, because, where am I? Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's two people, right? There's you, so Jesus is talking to his disciples and his followers, uh, presumably the 120 that were around him. You, and then the world, now, in the Bible, when the Bible says the world, it doesn't mean everybody. It's talking specifically about the, kind of like the lost, those who don't know God. And so what he's saying is, is that the Holy Spirit is known by you, but not everybody else. Because he uses the word, they can't receive him. They can't receive him. So this is a unique understanding of God, Okay. That, that, that God has to be received. He has to be close. It's this word, this fancy theological word, which means imminent or imminence. You've probably heard of transcendence, um, people who's trying to transcend through their religion or whatever. Maybe you think of uh, nirvana or Buddhism or something like that. Or you think about the extreme sports athlete who's trying to find a transcendent feeling by climbing a rock or jumping out of a helicopter or whatever. Okay, these kinds of feelings. But the opposite of that, and then it means that, 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 that feeling or God is outside of creation. That, that I think we grasp um, a little bit more maybe in classic religion. God spoke the universe into being because he's outside of nature. But there's other religions and other understandings that God is close, that he's imminent, that he's here. It's a unique understanding of God because Christianity is the only one that rightly says how it's both. That God is transcendent, yes, above and beyond the cosmos far. And when I was a kid, I was imagining this white-haired guy on a throne up in some cloud, right? Okay. But he's also very, very close. Closer to you, Bishop Philip likes to say, than you are even to yourself. He knows the hairs of your head, Jesus said. So Bavink again says, Nevertheless, the same sublime and exalted God stands in the intimate relationship with all his creatures, even the meanest and the smallest. Now, how does this differ, though, from other religions? 
How is this different from Buddhism? How does this differ um, uh, from any of the pantheistic religions or atheism or deism? Well, he goes on to say, It is important, therefore, in this matter of the knowledge of God, for us to keep a firm hold on both of these groups concerning the divine being and do justice to each of them. In other words, the transcendence and the immanence. For if we sacrifice the absolute transcendence of God above all creatures, we fall into what's called polytheism, the pagan religion of many gods, or pantheism, the religion in which everything is God, two false religions which, according to the lesson of history, are closely related to each other and easily pass from one to the other. And if we sacrifice the idea of the close relationship of God, eminence to his creatures, we go aground on the reef of deism, belief in God without the benefit of revelation or of atheism, the denial of the existence of God. Two religions which, like the others, are also kind of connected. So you can see to some degree why those things um, uh, are so important to kind of hold us in tension so that we don't see things wrongly. And so what the, excuse me, I'm, am I missing a page? No, 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 okay, all right, I think I got this. Sorry, excuse me. Um, so what is happening here is that the Holy Spirit enables us to see both. Now you might argue, you might argue, why do, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Can't we, in part, know God through reason and evidence? There are tons of people who argue about those kinds of things. There are apologists who write books on that. One of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity spends a whole time arguing about how God can be proved to some degree because there's a moral lawgiver. Law this is kind of like the moral argument. And I find it profound and it is true. But there's actually something curious going on in the Bible. And I want to I share this with you to kind of challenge your understanding of what this looks like. Um, because, because the Bible argues that you can't really know God unless you receive him first. Like you could study the Bible from the beginning to the end, read it many times, maybe even get a master's degree in theology or go to seminary and still not know God. I feel like my Baptist upbringing helped me really understand this a little bit better. It was like, you could have a pastor who isn't born again or isn't saved. And I was like, what? How, how does that even happen? And as you get older and you see, kind of encounter some of the people in your lives, you realize, oh, I've seen that, you know? I've even seen bishops or archbishops that say, that person has no idea who Jesus is, doesn't have a relationship with him, even though they probably have many degrees and many accolades, Right? So how does that happen? Because that's a weird thing. And then you find people who are incredibly smart and believe in God and people who are incredibly smart and don't believe in God. And they're all citing the same evidence. How does that happen? Now, what the world will tell us is the believers are fools. And believers will say, the atheist is the fool. I have scripture to back that up. But let me, let me focus on scripture again, because again, you just have these, these two arguing people. So again, the argument the Bible is saying is, and, the, and from history, is that man does not choose God even when it's for his best. And this is, this is the proof I'll just kind of share with you guys for a moment. You see it in the people of Israel. So let's pretend for a moment, we're going to do a little thought experiment, that we are deists, like Thomas Jefferson. Okay, somebody like that, who says, we know that even if religion is false, in other words, it's, not, it's provably wrong, 
that somebody who follows this religion actually has a better life. Thomas Jefferson believed that along with a lot of other, other deists. And it, I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian or whatever, but sure seemed like it. He was kind of in that vein. He was, deism is a whole other thing we won't get into today. But it's this idea that even if you don't believe in this stuff, if you are religious in nature or you kind of, um, your, your culture is grabbing a hold of this and believing it, it's better for the culture and civilization. It's better for your life. I'll give you another proof of this. Uh, they've proven that um, through psychology and other like polls and science and whatnot, that if you, if you pray um, regularly, that you are more healthy and you live a longer life. Now, a Christian might say, well, that's because, you know, God's answering your prayers. But a deist would say, no, it just so happens that that kind of belief actually benefits you. It doesn't mean it's actually true. So here's a thought experiment reasonably, what ought you to do then? Reasonably, you ought to believe in this kind of stuff because it benefits you. And yet, what do we know from the people of Israel? Like, the people of Israel were giving a direct communique to God. They were brought to the mountain that was trembling and on fire. They were given, presumably, a prophet who was speaking face-to-face with God, Exodus 33 says. And yet, what did they do? They continually turn their back on God. And it's not as if they became like a deist or an atheist or an agnostic. I just don't believe this stuff. I'm just going to back away. No, they chose a different God. They, would, they went from religious folk who believed in the cultic practices of Judaism, whatever, to follow the cultic practice of presumably some demon or Baalish God who asked to sacrifice their children. What we find is that men and women don't choose based on reason. This guy uh, who is a French uh, philosopher on theology uh, wrote this about um, this conundrum. If the people leave God, it is an aberration of reason, which can be condemned by reason and experience. For it shows man, even when he has every reason to worship God, still prefers not to recognize him. And this is already for us an indication that as long as the human heart has not been transformed by the Holy Spirit, don't miss that part, it is impossible for him to be convinced of God's excellence, either by experience or by reason. Man acts reasonably in every area but one, that of his relations with God, where he acts contrary to all reason and knowledge because the roots of his heart are bad. Now, I may not have convinced you or your in-laws or friends or neighbors by that statement, but, but I hope what we understand for those of us who know the truth and have a relationship with God, we see it. We see the roots of why there is a lack of belief or disbelief or weak belief in our culture and our civilization. It's not about having enough information or enough evidence or laying out the reason responsibly and putting it on a whiteboard. No, it's that they cannot and have not received the truth through the Holy Spirit. So when we think about that day, thousands, 2,000 years ago, when the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, and Jesus calls him a helper, even the Spirit of truth, we know that this was the, how the light was going to break free into the world, that the Holy Spirit would be released. And I find this playing out immediately, too, because on that day of Pentecost, when only 120 people followed Jesus, all of a sudden it blew up. People heard this 
sermon by Peter, which arguably was a lot better than anything he said before that. And then 3,000 men came to be saved that day. It was the first sign of how the light was going to break into our world. What does this mean for you and me? What does he do? Well, he fulfills a promise, of course. He fulfills a promise to us and to the church that God made to his people. That he would be with us forever and he would guide us in all truth. It's also a conviction to the world. When we say, what two people? Sorry, I missed that part. I'll share that with you real quick. The world cannot receive God. And the purpose of the promise, if you go back to verse 15, you'll see what he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the purposes of the promise, not only to keep us um, not isolated alone, but it was to empower us to actually work out our love and salvation by following God's commandments. You know that passage in Romans when it says, I do what I, I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do? You and I have experienced that. What it's like to say, I want to follow God. The flesh is weak, but what? The spirit is willing. And the Holy Spirit has come to make our hearts willing so we can fulfill that truth there. If you love you, love me, you will keep my commandments. The Holy Spirit empowers us not only in the truth and knowledge of God, letting us see Christ through the Holy Spirit, but also to love him and finally to obey his commands. Not primarily to give us the ability to perform miracles. We read a moment ago how they were given the power to speak other languages immediately. But as Francis Chan wrote in The Forgotten God, miracles are never an end in themselves. They are always a means to point to and accomplish something greater. And so what is that greater thing? That the gospel of Jesus Christ would go to the ends of the earth. And at the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It does not occur because of our strength or our wit or our persuasive abilities, but that when we present the gospel and the truth of the Bible to people, the Holy Spirit, sometimes using reason and experience and evidence, but oftentimes not, just shows people who Jesus is. That's my prayer. That we would be a part of that breaking of the light into the world, but also that it would begin with us. Guys, I, I come on Sunday mornings and I'm like, what am I doing? Or sometimes during the week, I'm like, where is Jesus? And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables me to see him more clearly. So my prayer is that you and I would see him more clearly, that you and I would have a better vision of Jesus. And the great thing about this is Jesus has promised that that helper that enables us to do us is with us now and forever. It may feel like it comes in bits and waves and whatnot, and that's okay. But don't let the enemy lie to you and say that you're alone, you're isolated, you have no help, because that's not true. Of all the things that our Lord Jesus Christ decided to send his people as a gift, a perfect gift, each and every one of you, that we might grow in discipleship and persevere to the end, he sends and gifts the Holy Spirit. He is now with us to show us the truth, to bring people to Christ, to convict the world of their guilt, and fulfill a promise God gave to his people to be with them forever. That's the God we serve. I invite you to receive that, to know that, to live in that. Amen.
Father, we pray, Lord, that you would guide us more and more, that you'd give us more and more of the Holy Spirit, that we'd be able to just, that our eyes, our mind's eye and our soul's eye would see him more clearly so that we'd be encouraged and strengthened to live out the faith that you have germinated in each one of us, that you have grown and born and seeded and watered. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you please stand?